The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Open up to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And a few weeks ago, one of our members just mentioned to me, Hey, Derek, it might be helpful if you could just review a little bit to put us where we need to be in terms of the context of Hebrews 5. Because as you know, Pastor Cliff will preach in Luke, and then I'm preaching in Hebrews, and sometimes we need to just catch up and get our contextual bearings. And so I'm going to just take a minute to do that so that we can find ourselves in Hebrews. Chapter 5, a very important passage in this book, and we want to make sure that we, we know exactly where we're at. So let's just do a brief review. Remember that this book is written to a group that's predominantly Jewish believers, at least that's what we can determine from the text itself. This seems like a, a group of people who are predominantly Jewish believers, and they are struggling with some kind of infiltration of false teaching but they also seem to be struggling with some sort of persecution that's tempting them to go back to the Old Covenant, to turn away from Jesus and the fulfillment that he's had in the New Testament or in the New Covenant, and to turn back to the Old Covenant. And so the author of Hebrews has to realign them spiritually and theologically so that they might see again and afresh the supremacy and glory of Jesus Christ and the, the sufficiency of Christ over against that Old Covenant. And so in chapter 1, what you see is the author of Hebrews giving us a beautiful exposition of the deity of Christ, describing him as the creator, describing him as equal to the Father, describing him as the one who receives worship from angels and the one who created the angels, not one who bows down to the angels. And he is not an angel himself. He's the very creator of angels. And so that's what you see in chapter 1. Jesus is the creator. He is God of very God, and he is actually worshipped by the angels, and the reason that's significant is because it seems that this teaching that was creeping in was some kind of teaching that exalted angels to a very high place, and so the author has to show that no, Jesus is superior even over the angels, and he's superior not only due to his deity, but he's also superior to the angels due to his humanity. He is perfect God, and he is perfect man. So as he wraps up chapter 1, describing Jesus as perfect God, he, he begins chapter 2 where he'll describe Jesus as perfect man with his first warning. And he's going to give several warnings throughout the book of Hebrews that are directed to believers, to all believers, all who profess the name of Christ, warning them of what will happen if they turn away from Jesus and go back to the old covenant. And these are strong warnings, they're sharp warnings, and and some of us have, have really absorbed them, and it's been, it's been painful. But that's the first warning you find is in chapter 2. Then you go into chapter, the rest of chapter 2, and that's a, an exposition of the humanity of Christ. He, Jesus Christ is perfect man, so he can substitute for mankind. He can substitute for humankind and be our perfect Savior and do what we cannot do to obey God perfectly and then to suffer in our place for our salvation so that dying in our place and then rising again he delivers us from the fear of death and that's what's described in chapter two then in chapter three jesus is described as superior to moses moses is looked upon by the jews as being highly significant he is the one who wrote the law we need to follow moses and the author of hebrews says that no clearly the messiah jesus he is superior to moses and then 
Later on in chapter 3, the author will make the argument that is because of that, don't harden your hearts to Christ, to God's word, to the new covenant, because you don't want to fall away and miss out on the promised land like the people in the wilderness generation did. Your promised land is heaven. Their promised land was the promised land in Israel. They missed out on their promised land because they failed to believe in God. They grumbled and complained and God killed them in the wilderness. Don't let that happen to you. Don't harden your hearts. And not only don't let your hearts harden, but concern yourselves with the hearts of your brothers and sisters and do what you can to make sure their hearts don't harden to God and fall away from Christ. Chapter 4 continues that exhortation to not harden our hearts and to have a a holy anxiety, as it were, over our brothers and sisters that they might not fall away. And then we came to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, which to many of us was a, a welcome relief after getting just absolutely hammered for two chapters with these warnings of what will happen if we harden our hearts. And we are given... What we need, as we are feeling the pain of those warnings, we're given this warm invitation to come to the throne of grace, to find mercy and help in time of need. Because that's precisely what we need when we hear these warnings to not fall away from the faith. Warnings to not harden our hearts to the Lord. We need help from the Lord. And so we are given this beautiful invitation to come into God's very throne room in verse 14 of chapter 4. He says this, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's exactly what you realize you needed after you continually absorbed these warnings. Wasn't it? I mean, I was feeling it. I need help, Lord. I need your help. And thankfully, because of Christ's mercy, we can go directly into your throne room and we can ask for the help that we need in order to persevere in the faith. And the author then in chapter 5, verse 1, which is now our passage, he is going to continue this theme of Jesus' high priesthood. And he's going to talk about a few important elements, remarkable elements of Jesus' high priesthood, beautiful elements. But actually, Jesus' high priesthood isn't the main thrust of this passage. Actually, the way this passage is structured and the way it's followed up by chapter 6 we, we are seeing that the author wants us to get to that warning in verse 11. There's, there's, a, there's a warning, there's actually a rebuke in verse 11. The author of Hebrews is going to deliberately interrupt his discussion of Jesus' high priesthood with a rebuke to the congregation. So that even though you may want to linger for a little bit in verses 1 through 10, the author is actually pushing us to the latter part of chapter 5, to that corrective word that he's going to deliver in verses 11 through 14. We must first grasp these truths about Jesus' high priesthood, but it's actually leading us to verses 11 through 14. He's going to interrupt his discussion of Jesus' high priesthood to say a sharp word to the congregation. But first, we are going to look at a few more points of Jesus' high priesthood. And I have a few headings for you, if that's easy for you to write down, and then just... 
list some things under that heading. The first thing that we're going to see about the high priesthood is that the high priest was gentle. Or we're going to look at the gentleness of the high priest. And this relates to Jesus. It'll relate to Jesus differently than it related to the Arianic high priest or the, the, the high priest in the Old Covenant. But the first thing that the text tells us is that the high priest is gentle. It says this in verse 1, For every high priest, remember we're coming right off that discussion of Jesus' high priesthood and how he enables us to go into the throne room of grace. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in his relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We'll, we'll go back to that point. We're going to focus on this one here. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. This is the gentleness of the high priest. This is, this is a description of that old covenant, that Old Testament high priest who was himself a sinner. And because he was a sinner who offered sacrifice not only for the uh, nation's sins, but also for himself, he could deal gently with the people of Israel because he himself knew himself to be a sinner. Obviously, the author's not arguing that Jesus was gentle to us on that account. Jesus isn't gentle with us because he himself was a sinner who had to offer sacrifice for his sins. No, we'll find out later in the passage that Jesus is gentle with us because he has taken on our own humanity. But nevertheless, the point here is that the, the high priest in his role is gentle with sinners. He's gentle here, and the text says, with the ignorant and the wayward. Under the Old Covenant, ignorant here probably means those who committed sins out of ignorance. There's actually sacrifices in the Old Covenant that were for sins committed out of ignorance. Because you not only sin when you do it willfully and with knowledge, you do it sometimes not even knowing that you sinned, right? And that's the same with us today and same in Israel. There had to be sacrifices for sins of ignorance when you didn't even know what the right thing was to do and you did wrong and so that sin needs to be taken care of and so those sins were covered in the Old Covenant. And that's probably what this word ignorant is referring to. The high priest in the Old Covenant would offer several kinds of sacrifices. He'd offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, thank offerings and atonement offerings and then he would take the blood atonement into the Holy of Holies on that Day of Atonement. And he would go into that Holy of Holies, that place where God's presence resided, and he would splatter the blood in a particular way that God had assigned so that he could atone for his sins and the sins of the nation. But he's offering these, these sacrifices for both the ignorant and he'll say here and the wayward. And he can deal gently with them because he himself is beset, as the text says, with weakness. Wayward here refers to those wandering away from God in Israel. And in the case of the Israel's high priest, he was also a sinner, so he could deal gently with sinners. This relates to Jesus, not in the sense that Jesus had sin, but in the sense that Jesus is gentle because he is human. So that's the gentleness of the high priest that he is describing here in verse 2 and 3. But back to verse 1, we also here have the humility of the high priest, the humility of the high priest. He doesn't exalt himself to the position. In Israel, the high priest did not exalt himself to the position. He didn't put in a promotion, an application for promotion. He wasn't elected by the people. He didn't sneak into the changing tent and put on the, the linen clothing 
and then jump out and grab the sacrifice and run to the Holy of Holies, he wouldn't have done that anyways because he would have died. But that's not what you do as the high priest. You don't put yourself in the position. That position is actually appointed to you by God, and that's what the text is saying. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of God in relation to man. He's appointed. The high priest in Israel didn't appoint himself, nor was he elected. He was appointed by God. Same with Jesus. Look at verse 4 now. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So that's, that's the old covenant now. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him. So the point here is that just like that Arianic high priest who was chosen from men by God himself, so Christ did not exalt himself or put in an application for promotion or try to grasp for himself that role of high priesthood, he was appointed by his father. He is truly the picture of humility. He is our humble, you could say, humble high priest. And so he says here, he grounds this argument in a biblical text here. He says, and it's a text that he's already used, he says, We'll we'll read it again. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We've already looked at that text in an earlier message, and we saw there that that language means to be begotten in that context in Psalm 2. It's a quote from Psalm 2, that in that context of Psalm 2, to be begotten means to be appointed as or established as God's king. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 2, Today I've begotten you to say that God has established his king. The king didn't establish himself, God did. And you might be thinking, yeah, Derek, but he just got done talking about priests, so why is he using a text to talk about a king? And here we step into a, a, a remarkable aspect of biblical theology that I want to take just a minute to put together for you a little bit if you haven't heard these things before. In the Old Testament, you have three primary offices. You have prophet, you have priest, and you have a king. And those three offices are held by three distinct people. You had your prophets, and you had your priests, and you had your kings. And they didn't uh, interrupt or intercept in uh, each other's offices. They each had their own individual office. A priest was not a king, and a prophet was not a king, and so on. However, what happens as you move along redemptive history, you start to see these three offices blend into one person. For example, Moses, right? Moses was a leader. He wasn't king. The kingship hasn't been established yet, but he's a leader in Israel. But he also acts as a uh, priest in that he intercedes for the people, And he also acts as a prophet, and he even says that another prophet's going to come along just like me. Now, he didn't have those official roles, uh, he didn't have those roles officially, but you can start to see the blending. And then it really comes to a head in David. You start to see the blending of these three offices, prophet, priest, and king, in David, which is fitting because Jesus will be the son of David. But Jesus, I'm sorry, David was a 
considered a prophet, though he wasn't in the official office of prophet. And the reason we know that is because 2 Samuel 23.2 says this. David says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. He is speaking as a prophet. He doesn't have that official office, but he is speaking as a prophet. And the New Testament will even call David a prophet. But then there's this scene in 1 Chronicles 15 where David begins to take on more the persona, you might say, of a priest. He is the king. He speaks like a prophet, though he doesn't have that official office. And he's not officially a a priest either. But here's a situation where he begins to kind of look like one. This is uh, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 25. It says this, So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Verse 27, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, and also were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, because that's what priests wore. If we went back to Leviticus 16, you would, you would see that the priests were robed in linen, lots and lots of linen. Here, David is clothed with, clothed with a robe of linen, and the author points out that so were the priests. What's that all about? And the singers, and Chenaniah, the leader of the music uh, of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod, another piece of priestly attire. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. Okay? So that's the scene we've got here. David, who's the king, who's starting to kind of look like a priest. This is interesting. What's going on here? Well, just a few verses later in chapter 16, it says this, And they brought in the Ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God, meaning the priest did. Verse 2, and when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Now, it's hard to discern. It's probably not the case that he did the actual sacrificing because that was the role of the priests. So it's saying here that he finished offerings. Probably he has the role of directing everything that's happening. But here you start to see David kind of taking on the role of priest as he is a king. And as we've already seen, he was a prophet as well. So what you see in David, it's, it's, not, it's not fully the case yet because he doesn't hold each of those offices officially, but we see those offices now starting to blend into one person so that when you come to Jesus You're anticipating these offices to find their final place in one person. And it's not just David where this is happening. Psalm 110, which is a psalm that's going to be repeated here in the book of Hebrews a few times. Psalm 110 speaks of a king who is also a priest. And this would have been quite stunning in Israel. This is a psalm of David. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is kingly language, right? The Lord sends uh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That's clearly kingly language. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments 
From the womb of the morning, uh, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Whoa. What? Wait, you're a king and you're a priest? And now it's official. This person, whoever this person is, they are now a priest king. And they're related to this person called Melchizedek. And you're like, who's Melchizedek? We'll get there. Just not today. <laughs> but who, who's, what is the author saying? We'll look back now to Hebrews. In, in grounding this statement about Jesus not appointing himself, he's grounding it now in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110. And he says in another place, verse 6, now you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what you have here is the stunning truth that in Jesus you have the bringing together of priest and king. We read elsewhere in the New Testament that he's also the final prophet, but here he is priest, king in one person. He not only can intercede for you, he now rules over all. And he's not in the order of Levi. This is significant. He's in the order of Melchizedek. And the only place in the Bible you meet Melchizedek, except for Psalm 110, is in Genesis 14. And I am really, really excited because after we get through this section, through uh, chapter 6, what he begins in chapter 7, he's, he, he, he stops with this theme of Melchizedek and he's going he's to offer a strong rebuke and warning. So buckle up. But then we're going to get back to chapter 7 where he's going to give this amazing description of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And that very statement in Psalm 110 and Genesis 14 and all that's happening in the Old Testament is demonstrating itself that the Old Covenant was meant to be temporary. That's what the Old Covenant itself is teaching. That's what the author of Hebrews is going to say in chapter 7. But we can't get there yet. We actually have to break off into another topic. But the point of our detour into Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 is simply to highlight the truth that when you come to Jesus in the New Testament, you find fully in one person the final prophet, the great high priest, and the king of kings. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And that was all being set up in the Old Testament with these various people in their various roles and offices. The Old Testament figures were only shadows. Jesus is the reality. That's the big argument of the book of Hebrews. Well, we need to look at one more piece, actually two more pieces here, two more characteristics of the high priest before we get into this corrective word in verses 11 and following. Next, we see the suffering of the high priest, the suffering of the high priest. This starts now in verse 7. A vital aspect of the high priest is that he, of this high priest who's after the order of Melchizedek is that he suffered. He says that he suffered in the days of his flesh, and it's not saying that now Jesus is not in the flesh. Jesus is incarnate. The Son of God is incarnate for all eternity, which is an amazing thought in and of itself. The Son of God will always be embodied. Jesus Father, they have united with humanity for all eternity in Christ. So the phrase here, in the days of his flesh, this is just shorthand for while he was on earth. That's all it means. 
Okay, so while he was on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Here we have Jesus, who is our great high priest, and he's offering up these these cries, these wails, the language even means, to God. He intercedes for his people, but in this case, he's, he's actually praying for himself. What is he praying for? That his father would deliver him from death. It says he, he offered loud cries and tears, wailing, you could say, to him who was able to save him from death. And some have said this is what was happening in Gethsemane. And I would say probably, this is probably a refer- reference to Gethsemane, but I think the language would have us uh, take it as this is happening through the course of his whole life, not just in Gethsemane though it is coming to a climax there. In the days of his flesh, in the day, all the days that he was here on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That's what the son was crying out to his father for. Save me from death. And the text here says that, he looked, that God looked upon him favorably because of his reverence, his perfect piety, some of your translations may say. That the father looked favorably on his son because he had a perfect reverence or a perfect piety, of course, because he was the son. And you might be thinking, yeah, but the father didn't deliver him from death. He had to die. So what's that all about? Well, you're right. He wasn't delivered from death absolutely, but he was delivered from death ultimately, wasn't he? He did hear his cries because he raised him up from the dead. This high priest was raised up from the dead. He was saved ultimately from death. The father did hear his prayers and he was installed as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So this text is true. God heard this perfect high priest's prayers. He heard his son's prayers. He heard his son's pleas and he raised him up from the dead. But prior to that exaltation through resurrection, Our high priest suffered deeply, which is precisely why he can deal gently with us. It's precisely why he can sympathize with us as our high priest. And he can intercede uh, for us on our behalf. Well, why all this weeping and crying? Well, verse 9 tells us this is now the perfection of the high priest, the perfection of the high priest in being made perfect. Now that phrase is a stumbling block for some. And being made perfect, yikes. What are you saying? That Jesus was imperfect and then he was made more perfect? That he was disobedient and then he became obedient? Because look at what it says. Um, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Say, what? He learned obedience? You mean he went from disobedience to obedience, imperfection to perfection? No, that's not at all what he's arguing. We know that because he's already said that this son did not sin, right? Tempted in every way that we are, but did not sin. Rather, It's not that Jesus went from disobedience to obedience. Rather, in order to qualify as our substitute, the Son of God needed to obey in real time. He needed to obey in real life. We're living in real life. We're living in real time. Well, if Jesus is going to substitute for us, he has to do that too. He has to come into 
this world. He has to become a man. He has to walk the same path that that man must walk. He has to do it all, and it has to be in real life. He needed to learn obedience in this crucible of daily life. He needed to fulfill all righteousness, like real righteousness, not just righteousness in the abstract somewhere, but like real righteousness in the face of temptation, in, in, in the face of life in a fallen world. He had to face God's holy requirements for perfect obedience, and he had to face temptation, and he successfully obeyed, and he successfully resisted temptation at every single turn his entire life. Ple- listen to this. Pleasing his Father in every thought, word, emotion, and deed. At all times, every place, no break. He pleased his Father perfectly. But he did it in real life. He did it in real time. That's what we're talking about here. In order for him to qualify as our substitute, he had to, as the text say, says, as a man, learn obedience through what he suffered. The suffering came in. That tempts you to give up, to come off the path of the cross. The temptation came in. He resisted. He continued to obey. And that was all done 2,000 years ago in Israel during his 33-year life. So that is the perfection of our high priest. But you might also be picking out something here that sounds a little odd to you. We can, okay, we grasp that he became, this, he be, he be, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. We understand that because he's our substitute. He can substitute for us. But who does he become the source of eternal salvation for? He becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And again, some of us might be like, obey him i thought it was believe in him i thought we're justified by faith i thought we're saved by faith not saved by works what is this those who obey him well remember what the emphasis of this letter is all about the emphasis is on getting christians all the way to the final end getting christians all the way to their final salvation The author here is emphasizing that Christianity isn't just a one-time belief in Christ and then done. He's emphasizing that true faith produces obedience. So if true faith produces obedience, it is absolutely right to say that he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him because obedience will characterize those who truly believe in him. So it's perfectly legitimate to phrase it that way. And it's perfectly legitimate in the context of what he's wanting to happen in this people. He wants them to continue to exhibit true faith through obedience. So he's definitely not teaching salvation by works. Hebrews 11.8 puts it really well in the same book. Hebrews 11.8, quote, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith Abraham obeyed. By faith Abraham obeyed. What does true faith do? It obeys. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone. What does that kind of faith do? It obeys. That's all he's saying. Besides, the gospel is a command, by the way. What did Jesus say in the beginning of his ministry? Right at the beginning he said, repent and believe the gospel. That's not a suggestion. That is a command. It's a command to go to all people everywhere. And so in that sense, even at an initial believing, you're obeying Christ. So there's no problem with what he is saying here. We need, to, we need to receive it. Jesus, having been made perfect through obeying in 
real life. Now he is our perfect savior, our suitable savior, our sufficient savior. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Verse 10, being designated by God, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He brings it up again. Why? Because this is a really important truth that Christians should know and enjoy. And I am really excited about chapter 7. He brings it up two times. He's, just, he's repeating it. So it's important. But there is a problem. And now we come to verse 11. This is where he was leading us. He's, we, we can see that because he interrupts himself. He breaks off this important topic, interrupts himself now with actually a rebuke that will then segue into the strongest You could say one of the strongest, if not the strongest, warnings in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 is pretty brutal, I'll admit, but Hebrews chapter 6 is famous for a reason, okay? It is a a blistering warning, and he's setting up that warning with a rebuke to this congregation. What's going on here? Let's read now the, the, the text in verses 11 and following. Okay? He's just gotten done talking about Jesus' high priesthood, the gentleness of the high priest, the humility of the high priest, the, the perfection of the high priest, the suffering of the high priest. This is all tied to some amazing truth about Melchizedek and Jesus' relation to Melchizedek. Verse 11, about this we have much to say. Yeah, you do, in chapter 7 and 8. And it is hard to explain. Well, yeah, because it's it's kind of deep and complex, right? No. Since you have become dull of hearing. The problem isn't intellect. The problem isn't even theological complexity. The problem was in the people. You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, had, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Listen, this is what the author is, here's a, here's a paraphrase. paraphrase. I, I want to continue to explain to you this, these truths about Jesus' priesthood and his relation to Melchizedek. That's what I want to do. Because man, it's awesome. Like once you start seeing it, you're just, your mind's going to explode. I, I need to stop, not because I want to stop, but because there's something deficient in you that is forcing me to stop. It appears as though you cannot handle the truth, so to speak. You can't handle these truths about Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood, so I need to pause for a moment and explain to you why this is not a good situation. The temptation might be to say, like, well, yeah, who, who knows about Melchizedek? That sounds very complex and up here, and that's for the theologians, and that's for the, the pastors and the scholars to be talking about. I don't need to get into that. And his point is like, no, 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 the reason I can't explain it to you, that actually is an indication that something very bad is happening in this congregation. It's not a good sign. It is a sharp rebuke. It's not mild. He is telling them that there's something wrong here where they should be actually have, actually have made much more progress in the faith than they had. They ought to be teachers, he says. What's the problem? Well, he says it's due to their being dull of hearing. 
Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be dull of hearing? Well, he gives us some hints. It has something to do with the ability to grasp spiritual truths to the point where you can teach them to another person, right? For though by this time you ought to be teachers. And you might be thinking, yeah, but Derek, teaching is a spiritual gift. Not everybody in the congregation is a teacher. But he's addressing the whole congregation, isn't he? He's not just saying to the pastors, you ought to be teachers by now. That would be redundant, or that would be an even bigger problem, right? Because they're the ones tasked with teaching. He's telling the whole congregation, you ought to be teachers by now, but you need someone to come alongside you and teach you the very basics again. It is true that teaching is a spiritual gift. Proclaiming the word of God publicly and authoritatively to the congregation, that is a spiritual gift that God gives some people, not everybody. He gives, a, he gives it out to a lot, but not everybody. Nevertheless, every Christian who has embraced Christ, understood the gospel, and embraced Christ is a teacher at some level. You may not be a teacher to the congregation here at the pulpit or at the lectern, but you are a teacher of the Bible at some level, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's with an unbeliever, whether it's with your neighbor, whether it's with a relative, whoever it is. You are, now that you have been entrusted with the gospel through faith, you now, you now are a teacher at some level. And that's why he can make this exhortation to everybody. You may not have the spiritual gift of teaching, but nevertheless you are expected to teach the truth of Scripture in personal one-on-one conversations, small group discussions, or evangelistic encounters. That's the expectation. Once you are saved, this is the truth, once you are saved, you become a teacher of the Bible at some level. It's a little bit here, a little bit there. You have a little private ministry or a small ministry to a few family friends, a few family members and friends. But that's what you're doing. You're teaching. And that's what all Christians should be doing at some level. In the case of this congregation, however, their spiritual senses had become so dull, their minds had become so muddled, and their heart had become somewhat insensitive to the Spirit that now their minds are easily confused about spiritual things. And the contrast here to those who can discern good and evil I think that is also telling us that in their case, they're starting to become unclear on certain truths about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's why it's being easy to be tempted to go in the direction of the Old Covenant. Things aren't as clear anymore. They used to be. That's why they came to Christ. But now they're starting to become hazy. And I can't really tell. Is it, is it the Old... Is, should I go to the Old Covenant? Should I? I don't... And they're unable to discern between truth and, true, uh, truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil... They lacked clarity and conviction. And when you lack clarity and conviction on what the truth is, you can't teach it to anybody else. And so what's happening here is that they had regressed spiritually. That's what the the text tells us. You, You had gotten to a certain point. Now you have regressed back to needing milk. You need someone to come alongside you and reteach you the basics of Christianity again. And this is not a good sign. He's not saying that Christians don't review the basics of the faith. I, I love to review the basics of the faith. I find it incredibly edifying. Cliff preaches sermons here back to basics. You, you guys haven't heard those, you should get online and check them out. A lot of good stuff. Christians review the basics of the faith. 
What's happening here is that their minds have become so dull, so muddled, so insensitive to the, to the truth that they're not able to discern the truth and they're unable to teach it to others. The conviction is starting to evaporate. They're starting to become confused. It's not a matter of a desire to review the basics for your edification. It's a matter of not even really knowing what the basics are anymore. And how to understand them. That's what's happening here. This dullness has set in. They needed to get back to baby food, baby food and start over so that they could work up the digestive capacity for meat and solid food. Just think about what that looks like on a human level. For someone to regress physically like that. I mean, we get them to the hospital ASAP, don't we? That's not, a, that's not a good sign. When someone regresses from the ability to be able to digest, digest all kinds of, of good foods to now, oh my goodness, all they can digest is milk? We got a problem here. Some sort, of, some sort of physiological problem is happening and we need to figure it out. It's not just like, well, I can just drink milk for the rest of your life, go get yourself a protein shake and everything's going to be fine. No, you're like, whoa, we got to figure this out. Same situation here in this congregation. This is bad. The reason why we know it's really bad is because it's followed up by Hebrews chapter 6, which is a warning against apostasy. It's a warning against turning away from Jesus Christ. Because that, according to the argument here, that is preceded by spiritual dullness. Spiritual dullness leads to apostasy. Spiritual confusion... In a dullness of mind and heart, and evaporating convictions, that leads to apostasy from Christ. And apostasy from Christ doesn't mean you get to just fling off Christ and deny Him and reject Him and then go to heaven. The point is that you do that at the height of revelation, and actually you'll be sealed off for eternity, never to be able to go back to repentance and believe in Christ. That's the force of the warning in Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll get there next week. So we can't take this as just a mild rebuke. This is really, really serious. The question I want to ask is, how did this happen, or how does it happen? In the, in the context of Hebrews, there probably was some persecution that, that was leading to this, and we'll talk about that in a second. But overall, the, the author of Hebrews doesn't really tell us explicitly how this was happening. And I think that's genius, because what it does is it allows us to apply it to our own situation and recognize there's a whole lot of reasons, how this, a whole lot of reasons why this would happen. There's a whole lot of factors, and we need to be able to discern our own situation and remain spiritually healthy. But one possibility is persecution. Biblically, just kind of broadening out in the the New Testament, I think that persecution can cause spiritual dullness. Let me tell you what I mean. See if this fits. When you know that strong, convictional belief in the truth about Jesus is going to garner some serious persecution from unbelievers, it may be easy to start backing away from the truth. Right? Let's just be honest. It may be easy to start backing away and the mind becomes muddled and dull. Not because the truth isn't clear, but because we don't want it to be. Because the clarity of that truth would lead us to take actions that are not immediately pleasant. And so what, what happens? Uh, we, we back off and the mind becomes confused, a little muddled. I, you just see this all over the place. 
particularly with issues related to, uh, or particularly with issues related to how our society is viewing certain uh, sexual norms. It's, it's easy to start to back off because, boy, if I really start to believe what Scripture says about human sexuality, that's going to lead to a lot of trouble for me personally. So what happens? People start to step back and they say, well, it's just not as clear in the Bible. It's just not as clear. That's not, a, that's not good. That's spiritual dullness. That's, that's actually rebuked here. Let me kind of put forward an illustration that I found helpful a few years ago about this dynamic of how persecution or the, the, fear, the fear of it can cause our minds to become muddled when it comes to truth. I read a few years ago, I read a, a heartbreaking book about the realities of inner city crime in, in L.A. Just an, a heartbreaking book. But the book follows an LAPD officer named John Skaggs through the streets of L.A. as he attempts to solve homicide cases. An important part of the, uh, solving homicide cases, if you're not familiar with this, is lab work, where you need to take bullets and bullet casings and even DNA. And, but in the case of bullets and bullet casings, you, you're working with these things in order to identify the, the murder weapon. Right? So you've got, you got this lab work that needs to happen within detective work. And you might think that the, the crime lab is safe. Like, I want to work in the crime lab because I'm off the street and I'm not chasing the bad guys. Right? So I'm safe in the crime lab. Well, actually, what, what can happen is, is that lab workers, if they are identified as the one who helped solve the case or bring an important piece of evidence to so, this, identifying the, the culprit and solving the case, they actually can become uh, objects of reprisal by families, uh, family members and friends of the person who's convicted. So fellow gang members or family or friends can learn that your lab work led to the conviction of their buddy or their brother. So a big challenge, as this book reveals, a big challenge in this kind of lab work is overcoming the fear of retribution in order to be able to then conduct your investigation without bias. Okay, you with me so far? Okay, so there's a section in the book with how Detective, De Detective Skagg started to wonder if the lab technician's fear of retaliation is actually keeping them from coming to clear conclusions about the case. He's, he's starting to see this dynamic in the lab. And in one particular scene, a chemist named Daniel Rubin tells Doreen Hudson, who was the one who, overs who oversaw the lab, and she's a civilian, she's not a police officer, she oversees the DNA lab, and Rubin is, it comes to tell him, like, we made a big breakthrough in the case. We have, our, our lab has discovered and identified the murder weapon. And here is the following scene. Hudson listened, frowning. It might seem strange that she did not rejoice upon learning that Coughlin's seized revolver was the murder weapon, but hunting for a killer is frightening, the more so as the case advances. Enforcing criminal law against violent offenders is one of the most dangerous tasks a state can perform, and for frontline workers, the danger is visceral. Skaggs, the detective, speculated that some of his underperforming colleagues were held back by subconscious fear. Each step toward an arrest increased the pressure. Not catching a killer could feel safer. When Hudson learned of Reuben's match, she felt not triumph, but dread and anxiety. What's happening here? What's happening is that you have someone 
who is afraid of what clear, solid convictions will lead them to. It's the truth, but it will lead to some unpleasant circumstances. So what do they do? They back off and they back off and they back off and they say, well, I don't know. It's just confusing. I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. Because testing clear, uh, providing clear test results would mean that they provided evidence to convict a killer, a killer whose friends and family might come after them. And I think the same can happen when we begin to realize the implications of believing a particular truth about God or about Scripture or about Christ or about how we should live. If we, feel, if we fear the trouble that conviction will bring, we will be tempted to back off for the sake of safety, won't we? So I think there's a good chance here that persecution was, was a factor. But this practice only creates what the author calls spiritual dullness. And it doesn't lead in a good direction. Scripture also gives us other reasons why this dullness can set in. Pastor Bob read a really good text in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus describes the third soil. You had the seed scattered, the seed gets into the soil, and you have three different kinds of soil. And the third soil, springs, the seed springs up, But what happens? It gets choked out. It doesn't become fruitful because it gets choked out by the deceitfulness of riches. And Mark 4 actually adds this phrase that Matthew 13 doesn't have. Simply the desire for other things. Other things begin to take paramount in become paramount in your life. And Jesus and his word is no longer a treasure to you. And that leads to spiritual dullness. I think you can take Matthew 13 and Mark 4 and you can put it in parallel with this text here. That what's happening in those texts is you have a spiritual dullness setting in due to these other competing factors that are taking away the love that you have for the Word of God, the love that you have for God. It could be the deceitfulness of riches or it could be the just desire for something else, whatever that thing is. Harboring sin can cause spiritual dullness. Listen to this proverb, Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. And prosper in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, that means spiritually prosper. Prosper in every way. They will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So I think harboring sin can cause spiritual dullness. If you're harboring sexual sin or bitterness or resentment or worldliness or financial malfeasance or theft or lying, if we are harboring those things, we can't expect our minds to be sharp and clear about what the scripture truly says. We're going to be, become dull. Spiritual laziness can cause our minds to get dull. Just being lazy, just not applying the word to ourselves, just coming in and coming out, coming in and coming out and being hearers of the word, as James says, Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Scripture must be diligently applied. It's hard work. I will admit it. It is hard to apply the truth of Scripture to my life and to my heart and to my mind consistently. It's just flat out hard. It's just easier to just kind of neglect it and kind of just go through life on autopilot. But that is going to lead to spiritual dullness. At root, the issue under all of these factors is unbelief. Unbelief. When we are hearing the truth of Scripture and we're not taking it into our hearts by faith 
and believing in it and seeking to enjoy it and love it and treasure it as the treasure it truly is, then over time our mind becomes dull and we will be increasingly unable to discern between truth and error, good and evil, right and wrong. And probably some of you are already thinking, I can see traces of this in my own life and I've seen this happen in the lives of other people I know. I've seen the trajectory. I've seen it a hundred times. Now we're going to carefully examine Hebrews 6, 1 through 12 next week, but I want to just go into it just briefly here today to, to close out. Because I want us to see, I want us to ask the question, what were these elementary principles that they were failing to take in and needed to go back to, and then ask the question, uh, how can we remedy this? So let's look at the verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. Therefore, okay, that was a a really sharp warning, right? Therefore, here's the answer, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works or of faith towards God and an obstruction about washings and the laying on of hands and resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. The basic truths that this group of people needed to be retaught were the basic truths about repentance and faith. Okay, you are a sinner. You need to turn from your sin. You need to trust in Christ as a sufficient Savior. Isn't that incredible? I mean, we're talking about a a group that that had all kinds of uh, spiritual resources that, that had been given to them. He, and even the author himself is giving them an incredible amount of spiritual resources even in the first part of this letter. But they need to learn the basics of repentance and faith. Okay, you're a sinner. You turn from sin and you trust in Christ. Turn away from the dead works here. It says dead works of that old covenant. The Remaining in the old covenant and doing those old covenant rituals is just dead works. They need to be reminded of that. Can you believe it? Like they had Christ, they had tasted of Christ, they had seen Christ, they had seen the beauty and the glory of the gospel, and now you're having to tell them, and all that Old Testament stuff, it's no good anymore. Like, whoa, wow, you have really regressed. They needed to be taught again that the Old Testament or Old Covenant and its rituals, like washings and so on, were obsolete and no longer necessary now that Christ had come and washed us clean. These are these are very basic. They needed to be taught again that there's going to be a resurrection someday. Christ rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead, and God will judge the world. And you're scratching your head going, wow, whoa, this is really, really basic stuff. And he's saying that this is exactly what you're starting to lose a grasp on. If you lose a grasp on this, there's nowhere else to go. You will go back to the old covenant. What might spiritual dullness look like for us? This is an important question. Just to bring it home for us, I know this has been a, a challenging message, but we got to hear this. Again, I, I just believe that when you get to heaven, you are going to thank God for the book of Hebrews because it kicked you in the tail all the way to heaven, okay? But let's just ask what this looks like. It might look like a decreasing, I'm I'm not going to say might, it will look like a decreasing interest in spiritual things. Just kind of just a steady, you started off enjoying the word, enjoying the Lord, enjoying worship, enjoying fellowship, just a steady decrease. It's no longer tasteful to you anymore. Just 
decreasing interest in spiritual things, a decreasing desire for the Word of God, not just a mere hearing, but a taking it in like it's your food, decreasing desire for the Word of God. And again, I'm not talking about the challenge that, that it is to have our daily times in the Word. It is hard. I get it. It's challenging. But they're underlying that there's this a potential decreasing desire for the Word of God altogether. You don't even, you're not even desiring it anymore. You can go weeks without opening your Bible or hearing a sermon, and it's no big deal. A growing inability to develop sharp convictions about right and wrong, what is true doctrine and false doctrine. You've kind of hit a stalemate, and it's just then things aren't as clear anymore. They used to be clear, but now you're... Things that used to be so clear in Scripture that, and what God was teaching, and now, now you're, you're actually backing off and going backwards. A growing inability to ponder deeper Christian truths. A growing comfort with sin. That's what this can look like. Well, what's the answer? What's the answer to spiritual regression? Actually, the answer is included in the question, isn't it? What's the answer to regression? Yeah. Make progress. That's right. It's not complicated. The remedy to spiritual aggression is making progress in your knowledge of divine truth and your fight against spiritual lethargy and our fight against spiritual dullness. Make progress. That's precisely his argument. And this we will do if God permits. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine. It's not that you're going beyond it in the sense that you're now believing something strange or believing something untrue, is that now you're progressing beyond just the basic elementary truths of the Christian faith to go on to deeper, more substantial truths like how Jesus' priesthood is related to Melchizedek and all the wonderful things that that means. So we need to make progress. We need to make progress in sharpening our skills of discernment. That's an important piece of this text. But solid food, verse 14 in chapter 5, solid food is for the mature, for those who have by their powers of discernment have been trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We need to put truth into practice. Psalm 119, 100, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Spiritual understanding is deep, and the more we obey what we know. This is not a secondary issue, saints. This is not something that we can just leave to tomorrow. When we sense spiritual dullness, we need to take ready action. And we're going to talk more about that next week. I'll just end with an illustration. It's like being in a river, and you see ahead of you on that river a place where it's safe to get out. But you have to swim upstream to get there. And you see the safe spot in the distance, but you also know that right behind you is a waterfall that is going to fall, take you into, a, into your death. So you have got to make progress. And if you don't, the moment you stop swimming, what happens? You start getting pulled immediately downstream. That's why often the scripture tells us that the Christian life is like a fight. You must continue to fight upstream. Because if you stop, you're going to get pulled downstream and tossed off that waterfall. Well, I want to close with this. I'm sure this has been challenging, but this is where I want to direct this. Back to chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. What do each of us need to fight dullness, spiritual apathy, and lethargy? What do we need as we, to do as we repent for not taking an active interest in spiritual things? What do we need to do when we've sensed that we are just headed in the wrong direction? 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let not this message throw you back on your own resources. Let it send you to Jesus Christ so that you can get to make, begin to make progress back upstream. That's where we need to be, all of us. And we'll talk more about this next week as we get into chapter 6. But let us all go now to the throne of grace and ask God for help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this warning, a tough, tough rebuke to hear. Uh, I trust that some, if not many of us, have sensed the spiritual dullness set in now and again. Help us to fight against it, to not be content with it. And I pray as we come before your throne of grace that you would have mercy on each of us. Show us your mercy. Give us your spirit. Build us up in the faith. And help us to make progress that we need. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.